This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, we hear how college students with disabilities are leveraging their strengths to transition into life after college. We know that individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities have great strengths to offer an employer. So it's a matter of really identifying what those are. And we'll learn why some retail centers across northern Colorado are facing foreclosure during the pandemic. Those stories and more coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. College seniors are wrapping up their final semester while figuring out what to do next. This includes a group of students with intellectual and developmental disabilities at the University of Northern Colorado in Greeley. They will be the first to graduate from UNC's inclusive higher education program. This program and what the state is doing to help people with disabilities make the transition from school to the workforce are the focus of a new reporting collaboration between KUNC and the Colorado Sun. In a few minutes, KUNC's Stephanie Daniel will give us a deeper look at career readiness and some of the state's programs and initiatives. But first, Erica Brunlin from the Colorado Sun is with us to tell us more about the UNC program and the reason they're reporting on all of this. Erica, welcome. Hi, Henry. So the series that you two worked on is called Unhidden, Colorado's Push to Include, Educate, and Employ People with Intellectual Disabilities. I'm intrigued by the word hidden. What does it mean in this context? So our reporting focuses on an inclusive higher education program called the Goal Program or Go On and Learn Program at the University of Northern Colorado. And it's a program specifically geared towards students with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And it's a relatively new kind of program here in the state of Colorado. During our reporting, a couple people used the word hidden when talking about people with disabilities, and they related it to a few different meanings. We learned from some educators about this concept of hidden curriculum in which students grow and learn lessons and develop in ways that you can't necessarily capture in a grade or track on paper. For instance, some of their students have really blossomed through learning how to be more vocal or through learning how to ask for help and advocate for themselves. We also learned about hidden in the sense of this hidden population. Corey Pierce is the director of the UNC College of Education and Behavioral Sciences in UNC's School of Special Education. And he talked to us about how students who have intellectual and developmental disabilities really belong to a hidden population. He told us that starting in elementary school, kids with disabilities are educated separately, placed in separate rooms, even separate buildings sometimes. And so they're really segmented away from the general population. Parents, you know, with, with society and the, and, the, and the judgment that oftentimes comes, especially if, they, if the student happens to have a physical appearance that people recognize as a disability, they're staying home. They're keeping them home. They're not putting them out front. So this is a hidden population. Erica, you reported the first story in the series, which is about this inclusive higher education program at UNC. Tell us how it works. This program is catered specifically towards students who have cognitive and developmental disabilities. And it's really composed of three distinct components. And those are academics, social and campus life, and workforce development. And so the program really takes students with cognitive and developmental disabilities through these three areas and helps them develop skills that will not only help them determine what kind of career they want to pursue and how they can successfully do that through courses, but it also equips them with life skills, things like learning how to clean, learning how to navigate transportation, learning how to budget, so that hopefully once they graduate, they are ready to live as independently as they want to. And then it also provides them internship and workforce opportunities 
both on campus and then in community businesses in venues that are related to whatever they're studying at school so that they have that real world experience to really complement that academic component. Christina Rafati is the executive director of Goal. She says the goal of the program is to really help students create and lead as independent of lives as they want to. It's about building self-determination, about building self-advocacy, about building awareness of the larger world and their place in it. For many of our students, decisions have been made for them all along the way. And coming here, being at UNC, this is really one of the first times they have their own voice and are able to use it. And so this UNC Goal program has its first class graduating this May. How have students there with intellectual and developmental disabilities grown through the program? Yeah, I think it's a particularly exciting year for the Goal program because their first class of students is really reaching the end and reaching the graduation threshold. We talked to a number of students who have been part of this program, and they really talked about the ways they've grown personally with learning how to take care of themselves, learning how to live independently in dorms and apartments, and learning to really have the confidence to be on their own once they graduate. One of the goal students we interviewed is senior Isabel Woolison, and she talked to us about how she's built up a lot of knowledge while she's been at UNC. She had a lot of emotion as she talked to us as she's really excited to graduate like any of her peers, but she also has the same kind of anxiety that I think we all face. And Isabel talked to us about how the past four years have really flown by and she's going to miss the program, although she is ready to, to lead a very independent life. I feel like I, I learned a lot with like my classes and stuff. I feel like the building of a new career is definitely up in the works right now. So that's really good. I feel ready-ish to graduate in May, but I'm also a little bit scared at the same time. Because <laughs> I feel like yesterday was supposed to be my freshman year, and now I'm like a senior going to graduate this semester. It feels fast to me. It feels really fast. So what's next for the students after graduation? How, how does the program help prepare them for life after college? So I think that is a question that can't be answered generally. It looks very different from student to student. And that's what the GOAL program really sets out to do. It sets out to help meet students with intellectual and developmental disabilities where they are, help them figure out what they want to do for the rest of their lives, and then chart a path to get there. This program opens up job opportunities and possibilities for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities that previous generations were never given the chance to even consider. That was Erica Brunlin, who covers education for the Colorado Sun. Now we'll hear from KUNC Stephanie Daniel, whose reporting looks at how students with intellectual and developmental disabilities are making the move from school into the workforce and what the state is doing to help in that transition. On a recent Friday afternoon, Brendan Balmas stops by Crabtree Brewing Company for a beer and to say hello to his boss, Jeff Crabtree. Hey, Brendan. Hey, Jeff. The 28-year-old works here as an intern, although the pandemic has put that on hold for now. But that does not stop Crabtree from giving him a pop quiz to make sure he still knows what to do. And what is this machine? Do you remember? Wash tanks. Washes kegs. That's right, washes kegs. So do you remember how to do it? I do. Balmas is a senior at UNC and enrolled in the university's Go On and Learn or Goal program for students with intellectual and developmental disabilities, or IDD. He's studying brewing science. I just remember like, doing stuff about beer, 
when he graduates in May, Balmas will earn a comprehensive higher education certificate and hopefully pursue his dream of working in a brewery or restaurant. Learning real life employment skills matters. Christina Rafati is the executive director for Goal. The four-year program has three pillars, academics, social inclusion, and career readiness. Students work on campus during their first two years and then have externships during their junior and senior years. What we never do when we're job developing for individuals with disabilities is talk about the disability first. First, we sell the skill set. Rafati knew Balmas was interested in working in a brewery, so she reached out to Crabtree, who is also a UNC alum. It was an easy fit because he's already working with students in the school's brewing science program. We started with uh, general packaging, general prep, and then he worked his way up to even the machine that's behind us that's running. He was running that machine. And then he was also filtering beer at the end of his shift. According to a 2018 survey from the U.S. Census Bureau, only a third of people with cognitive disabilities were employed in Colorado, which is slightly higher than the national average. But COVID-19 has impacted this group, too. A national survey by a disabilities inclusion consulting firm found nearly 40 percent of people with disabilities have lost their jobs during the pandemic. Employment issues are something Bob Lawhead has seen firsthand during the 40 years he's worked in this field. I currently serve as the policy advisor for the Colorado Developmental Disabilities Council. He also has a 24-year-old son with Down syndrome who works part-time. And so we have this whole system from birth to death that presumes incompetence of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. Historically, those with IDD were employed in group work settings, making subminimum wage. Lawhead says these programs grew like crazy in the 1950s and 60s, and for good reason. They gave people jobs. But the problem is when you create a whole system like that, it's so gosh darn hard to dismantle. He says things are slowly changing, thanks in part to federal civil rights legislation, like the Rehabilitation Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act. By the mid-1990s, Colorado led the nation in employing this population. And then things started to slide. The system went from being funded by the state to being funded through Medicaid. This decreased financial incentives for employers to hire people. And Lawhead says the model was too dependent on who was heading up state agencies. We would have success when we had a leader who bought into it and felt it was a good idea. But without legislation, without it in statute, those pieces of progress tended to backslide. So he partnered with other advocates and state lawmakers to develop the Employment First for Persons with Disabilities bill. It passed in 2016 and created the Employment First Advisory Partnership. EFAP is a collaborative group of five state agencies and community stakeholders that implement policies and practices to change state systems. The goal is to improve competitive integrated employment outcomes for people with disabilities. We're not saying that you can just drop a person with significant disabilities into any job. Lawhead is the tri-chair of EFAP. What we are saying is that when you match the particular job with that person's skills and that you, what's called customized employment, you customize the work situation. We know that individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities have great strengths to offer an employer. That's Patricia Hankey. She's director of the Colorado Office of Employment First. So it's a matter of really identifying what those are and to help an individual thrive in the workplace. COEF was created 18 months ago and is a direct result of the 2016 bill. It coordinates with all the different stakeholders, from state agencies to families and service providers. It offers trainings, education, and customized employment services. Competitive employment, real wages for real pay, is a social determinant of health. 
that going to work makes you feel better. You have less visits to the doctor. You have a community. You are earning money that opens up doors to, you know, further prosperity and living independently. Colorado is an employment first state. It means every resident deserves a job in the general workforce to make minimum wage and be eligible for a promotion. But despite the rewards of working, Catherine Carroll says having a job and making money with a disability can be complicated. People are terrified that they will lose their Medicaid. Carol is another EFAP tri-chair. Her daughter, Mikhail, is a homeowner, entrepreneur, and a disabilities advocate. She receives monthly Social Security checks and uses a wheelchair and support services, which Medicaid pays for. If I had to choose between employment and that, I would kick employment out the door. I would always maintain those benefits because it's just so expensive. People have no idea how expensive care is. Carol says people with disabilities should not have to choose between a job and their benefits. It's why the Office of Employment First offers benefits counseling to help families navigate these issues. And it plans to add a basic info page to the website. Back at Crabtree Brewing Company, owner Jeff Crabtree continues quizzing UNC senior Brendan Balmas. Remember this? Yeah. I just happen to be doing it right now. Okay. He says Balmas has a great attitude and work ethic, and that he's just like other UNC interns, addicted to his phone. As a brewmaster, I have to say, guys, put your phones away. We're actually doing a job right now, and uh, we should be focusing on that. But overall, it wasn't hard for Crabtree to hire an intern with a disability. It's another asset in your organization, and it may take uh, a little bit more in the training and getting the pipeline built, but dedication and hard work it comes from all sources. And he thinks Balmas could get an entry-level job as a sellerman and be successful, especially if he's teamed up with a mentor. What was your favorite part of your internship? I think it's probably um, working in the back is my fave. Like make, making beer too. After graduation, Balmas plans to move back to Golden with his parents and follow a family tradition, hanging his UNC pennant on a wall in the basement. He plans to travel and work at a local brewery, and maybe even have his own tap room one day. I would name mine Brendan's Brewery. Stephanie Daniel, KUNC. That story is part of a recent reporting collaboration between KUNC and the Colorado Sun. You can find this story and more reporting at our website, KUNC.org. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Henry Zimmerman. And I'm Erin O'Toole. The promenade shops at Centera in Loveland have been listed for foreclosure. This is the third major retail center along the Front Range to face foreclosure in the last few months, unable to keep up with financial obligations amid the pandemic. To learn more about this, we are joined now by Dan Micah, a reporter for Biz West. Dan, welcome back to Colorado Edition. Hi, Erin. We know the pandemic has really hurt a lot of retail businesses over the last year. Is it a surprise to learn that the shops at Centera are also falling victim to these unprecedented financial struggles? Not really. So we have known that the, that the promenade shops at Centera have been for sale uh, as early as last May, probably well before the, the shops were suffering some kind of financial difficulty, usually when we're talking about uh, a property at the size of the prominent shops, um, usually, you know, the months in advance of the decision to list that property for sale has is being made. It doesn't really surprise me that, you know, large retail centers who were kind of struggling, um, you know, not to the extent of, of the, the common refrain of Amazon's going to take over everything and, you know, completely destroy in-person retail, but 
they were they were struggling before this, and it really doesn't surprise me that the promenades have been put up uh, in foreclosure. Well, as we noted a moment ago, the promenade is the third major retail center along the Front Range to face financial difficulties. Um, there's the Belmar Shopping Center in Lakewood, facing a foreclosure demand of more than $100 million. And then there's the Foothills Mall in Fort Collins. You wrote about this. Briefly tell us what's happening there. Yeah, so last week, a state court uh, granted approval for McWinney Real Estate Services, which developed the promenades at Centera, but don't own it. Um, they have been named the lead bidder to try and buy the Foothills uh, Shopping Center, and uh, they have told me that they intend to kind of uh, trying to pivot an area away from retail and trying to focus it more on j- just to make it a more a place where people can hang out more. So probably more restaurants, bars, um, you know, less focused on the traditional retail mix that you would see in a a shopping center. That deal hasn't gone through yet. They're still in the due diligence phase. And uh, they say that uh, if everything goes to plan, they could uh, purchase that property in in Fort Collins sometime in the second half of this year. Well, you mentioned McWinney. They are based in Loveland. And they, as you mentioned, they built the promenade shops at Sentara, they don't own it, but they they have an interest in seeing the promenade succeed, right? Yeah. So McWinney, it, it was founded in Loveland. The family has been in Loveland for a very long time, and right now the Sentara development, which is this really large master plan community, they're building uh, apartments, they're building neighborhoods, they're building retail centers. Ultimately, the promenades is you know the crown jewel of this big development that they're trying to show can work in Loveland and can be a really viable way to make Loveland uh, a destination in the front range. So that definitely is something that even though there's not a direct financial interest at this point for McWinney, there's still, you know, that still is kind of part of their overall strategy to see that retail center work out. Well, I just want to wrap up by asking you what all of this means for those of us who like going to hang out and shop and eat at these places. Um, Are they likely to be rescued or will we see these stores go the way of places like the Greeley Mall with just a handful of places left open? That is a question that if if I knew the answer to definitively, I would be a a much richer man than I am right now. it really is an open question. You know, again, going into the pandemic, we saw, you know, malls and shopping centers struggle not only because foot traffic was declining in certain places, um, and not just because Amazon e-commerce just made it a more convenient way to shop, but also because there was a lot of of debt um, associated with with this. Uh, you have to take out a lot of money to just build these places, and you know, if you don't nail the mix of retail, the mix of restaurants, and the mix of other amenities and entertainment options that drive people to your to your shopping center, you know, you could go the way of a traditional mall where you've got all of this this money that you have to pay and just not just not getting enough consistent revenue to keep up. McWinney's entire idea is just to make foothills and its other developments uh, across the front range, including Union Station in Denver, Baseline in Broomfield. Their entire strategy is to make it uh, make those community centers like places to hang out. But what the secret sauce is for making that last for a long period of time, um, especially in the post pandemic time where, you know, it, it's still an open question as to whether 
people, once they get vaccinated, are going to want to go out and hit the bars constantly if there's going to be a big party or if we're still going to see the, the habits that we've had to learn of, of staying inside as much as possible, whether that stays for a while. So it really is going to have to be a wait and see kind of question. And it kind of delves into the intersection of finance and behavioral economics. Dan Micah is a reporter for BizWest. You'll find a link to his reporting on the Promenade Shops and Foothills Shopping Center at our website, KUNC.org. Dan, thanks so much again for joining us. Anytime. The pandemic has caused huge revenue shortfalls in state budgets across our region and the rest of the country. And in some places, that's meant a renewed conversation about taxes. But one of those conversations may not be what you would expect. The Mountain West News Bureau's Maggie Mullen reports. So a story about taxes. You may be thinking this is going to be a lot of numbers or maybe a bit boring. But what about awkward or taboo? It still is something that, you know, gets whispered about. That's Jen Simon, and she's talking about periods. Simon is with the Wyoming Women's Action Network, and she says that cultural stigma prevents important public policy discussions. For example, affordability. So if you can't actually afford products, Um, You might not go to school um, on those days, so you might miss out on part of your education. You might not be able to go to work on those days, so you might work miss out on income. It's really incredibly problematic. So what does someone's menstrual cycle have to do with the debate about taxes? The Revenue Committee's call to order, and our first bill... um, Is it Senate file 27? Is that the right number? Well, for the Wyoming legislature, uh, it came up during a January Revenue Committee meeting. Republican Senator Affie Ellis presented a bill to exempt menstrual products from taxation. But the bill didn't even make it out of committee. On the Senate side, I knew that the bill would uh, likely not advance. Uh, Wyoming has significant budget uh, issues that we're dealing with right now. And so any loss or foregone revenue collection, I knew would be a challenge. If it had been signed into law, Wyoming would have joined a minority of states in the U.S. that exempt menstrual products from taxes. Laura Strassfeld is with Period Equity, a nonprofit legal organization that's working on what they call menstrual equity. By that, we mean working to make sure that menstrual products are free and accessible and safe. Traditionally, menstrual products have included things like tampons, pads, and liners. In recent years, other products like the menstrual cup and even period underwear have gotten more popular with people seeking out environmentally friendly options. Prices range from around 10 bucks a month for tampons to roughly $35 for a menstrual cup. But in most states, one thing is the same. They still tax menstrual products. In the Mountain West, Nevada is the only state to specifically get rid of the tax. That was back in 2018. Strasfeld says she'd like to see more states do that, especially since the problem also disproportionately impacts people on a limited income. Because they're purchased in small quantities. They can't be purchased in bulk and online. And um, and the prices are higher in in places where poor people buy these products. So I I challenge anyone to find a more regressive tax than the tampon tax. Is it more complicated than that? Catherine Lawhead thinks so. She's with the Tax Foundation, a nonpartisan tax policy research organization. She says taxing menstrual products does make sense. An ideal sales tax is one that has a broad base, but as low of a rate as possible in order to cover government services that are provided. Now, a lot of 
goods have been exempted over time, um, often for political reasons. Those goods run the gamut from hair loss products and private jet parts to gun club memberships and donuts. And Lawhead says making those exemptions is not the best approach. Because that results in a, a sales tax base that picks and chooses different things. It's a a smaller base, and that leads to higher rates over time. And then there's the timing. We're in an economic downturn right now. Now, of course, is a time when we are seeing a lot of revenue uncertainty. And so it does make sense to be extra cautious about what we are doing to the tax code. In Wyoming, at least, the discussion has died down to a whisper once again. Though it's possible if it picks back up, the debate won't be just about taxes. Across the pond, Scotland just became the first country in the world to make menstrual products free to anyone who needs them. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Maggie Mullen. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You'll find more stories at KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Tomorrow on Colorado Edition, it's been a year since the first coronavirus case was discovered in Colorado. We'll look back at what we've learned and what lies ahead. I'm Erin O'Toole. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production team includes Ray Solomon, Tess Novotny, and Alana Schreiber. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thanks so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC.